So hear now the very word of God as it is given to us in the Gospel of Luke, reading from the 13th chapter, the first five verses. There were some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. May the Lord bless the reading of this very Very poignant word to our understanding this morning. Let's ask him to bring it alive. Our dear Heavenly Father, as we we delve into these words of Jesus and we try to put it in its context, help us understand the nuances that work here. Help us understand the diversion that occurs and how Jesus brings it back to the central, most important thing in all of human existence, and that is our relationship with him. Lord, I pray that as we study this, the relationship that we have with Jesus will take absolute center stage. We will realize he is the preeminent one, and that salvation is found in him and him alone. We will give you the glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. One of the reasons that so many people um, reject theism in general, the belief in God and Christianity in particular, is because of the pain and suffering and misery in the world. They ask questions like, how can God be good and there be such suffering? How can God be a good God who loves his people and still his people suffer? Well, the legalists have an answer, a pat answer for that. The legalists in Jesus' day as well as the legalists in our day, they simply say, well, those who are punished, those who are suffering are being punished by God because of their egregious sinfulness. I can remember back in January of 2010, just about uh, 14 years ago, when a devastating earthquake hit the island of Haiti, particularly in the area of densest population right there in Port-au-Prince, one of the most densely populated places on the face of the planet. And literally hundreds of thousands of people were killed instantly. The town was reduced to rubble. It was a disaster of epic proportions. And the world looked on in horror as the images came out of of that city and just the loss of life and the devastation to property. But it wasn't very long before the legalists chirped in. And I'm ashamed to say that they were Christian legalists. And they said, well, the reason for this is because God is punishing those Haitian people. He's punishing them because they worship Satan through the religion of voodoo. Now, I'm not going to say God does not punish evil. Absolutely, he does. And I'm not going to tell you that there's any consequences, that there are no consequences to sin. But boy, did they get that one wrong. Our brother, Pastor Jephthah, was on the ground within hours down there trying to help those that he could. 
And if you would ask him, you would find out that the bodies of Christians are being stacked up right next to the bodies of pagans. That the churches were destroyed right along with the rest of the buildings. That tens of thousands of children were orphaned because their parents were killed. That some of the major centers of voodoo in the island were untouched as if nothing had happened to them. And yet... Missionaries and pastors and church leaders and faithful uh, Christians all lost their lives in that. Now Jesus is going to face the same kind of a, of a sort of a question, sort of a statement that begs a question this morning. A little smaller scale, but the principles still apply. And they're going to basically ask, well, what, how come... How come God doesn't take care of his people any better than this? How could God be good if he allowed all of these things? And Jesus has this magnificent way of cutting through the fluff, of cutting through the confusion of a self-centered question like that, right to the very essence, to the very core of human existence. Because he's going to ask the question in return, will you likewise perish? And that, my dear friends, is the question on the table this morning. Now, there are those, and as I said earlier, we are starting a new chapter. There are those who would say that, well, there's a major break here, that the thoughts that Jesus is expressing now really have nothing to do with what just occurred in the 12th chapter. I could not disagree more. Luke is a very integrated book, and this is a continuation of some of the thoughts, both this week and next week, continuation of the thoughts that Jesus was developing at the end of the 12th chapter. Let me bring that out just a wee bit. You remember he gave a a distinction between two different kinds of servants, the kingdom servant, a faithful servant, a, a servant that was ever ready and ever watchful, waiting for his master to come home, who was looking after the the possessions of the master. And then that was compared very sharply with a wicked servant, a servant who could care less about his master's possessions, who was not ready and not caring at all about the return. Now, we learned that that distinction was a division between people and there was great blessing for the one that was faithful and great punishment for the one who was not. And Jesus said something that was really astounding. We had to really look at it very closely. He said, the reason that I have come to this earth is to bring the fire of God's wrath upon the sinful, the sins of the people of this earth. But then we realized that he wasn't talking about eschatological judgment. He wasn't talking about the end of time. That he was talking about himself as he hung on the cross and would be baptized in the very fire of the wrath of his father. Not for his own sins, but for our sins. For the sins of the people who put their trust in him. And so therefore we realize that at that point Jesus becomes the dividing line of all humanity. You either believe in Jesus or you don't. You are either saved by his blood or you aren't. It is a fine line. There's no middle ground whatsoever in the way that Jesus presented that. And 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 then he talks about uh, this division is going to be a division that even strikes at the very core of society, the, the family unit. And then he rebuked the people. He rebuked the crowd that was there and saying, you have got more, you've had more signs to believe and yet you still not do it believe. You are pertinaciously blind. 
You're blind because you want to be blind. You're blind because you don't want to see the truth. And then he told that little story. That little story about two guys walking down the road on the way to the judge. And, and, and there's a creditor and a debtor. And, and, and Jesus appealed to the people through that story. Go ahead and settle with your creditor now. Don't get to the judge. Because once it gets to the judge and you are found guilty, which you will be found guilty, you will be thrown in prison and you will never, ever get out. He's talking about hell. He's talking about spiritual things. All of this is on the table. These are serious matters. This is an eternal matter. And all of this is what Jesus is talking about. And all of a sudden, someone comes out of left field. I know it's my right, but it's your left. Somebody comes out of left field with a diverting statement that's supposed to get the whole thing off track. And if you don't understand that, you're not going to understand why Jesus answers the way that he does. Because he's not going to have anything to do with that. He's going to bring this right back and the central focus, which is, will you likewise perish? But that is sort of our background. Let's jump into this text. Not a whole lot of it, but very, very poignant. Notice there in the beginning of the 13th verse, there were some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifice. Now notice the way he starts that out. At that very time. This is an interruption. Okay, while Jesus is speaking of these great eternal matters, these eschatological matters, the, the, the redemption, God's redemptive plan, these guys come up with a completely different idea, or it seems like it is. Now, the word that is the, the, of, of emphasis in this particular Greek sentence is the word present. Present were a group at this particular point in time. But, and, and almost every English translation translated as those present. Almost as if somebody raises their hand and said, Hey, Jesus, let, let me ask you a question or let me tell you something that just happened. But if you go to the Greek dictionary, it doesn't translate that as present. It, 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 it's, it translated as they came or, or a group came to Jesus. It's almost like they pushed their way forward. And the idea is of a disruption, a disruption that was planned on being a disruption. There's an interruption to what Jesus was talking about, but we're going to see he's not going to allow that to occur. And so they come and they tell him something, whether Jesus knew it or not, we don't know. But tell them of a heinous activity that had occurred. Notice at that very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. Now, this is the second time that Luke has included the name Pilate in his, um, in his gospel so far. We know that Pilate will be extremely important later on when we get to the trial of Jesus and his crucifixion. But he mentions him here, and it's not necessary for us to go too deeply into the history of Pilate, but we do need to kind of set the stage a little bit for this. Pilate was the governor, excuse me, of Judea between probably around 26 AD and 36, 37 AD. And, and, and he was a less than capable man, to put it mildly. He was one of those guys you would call a little big man. 
Probably he was appointed to this not because he had the ability, but because he was he married into royalty, uh, and and it was through his wife that he got this appointment. But as is so often the case, when you get someone who doesn't have the ability to rule, they tend to rule through brutality and cruelty, and that's exactly the way that Pilate was ruling his governorship. Now he was the fifth governor since the death of um, uh, of. Herod the Great to have held this position. And all of the previous governors who had held that position were very careful to make sure that they did not um, introduce any kind of idolatry into um, Israel, knowing how fiercely monotheistic the Israelites were. So they were very careful not to start that problem, but not our friend Pilate. When Pilate shows up, his first day on the job, he brings all these standards with an image of Caesar. Of course, they were worshiping Caesar in those days. Basically, idols and places them all around Jerusalem. Well, of course, the Israelites got uh, uh, furious. And they went and staged a sit-in around Pilate's house until he would leave. Well, after several days, I think it was like five days they were out there, Pilate finally says, listen, if you guys don't go home, I'm going to send my soldiers out and I'm going to lop off all of your heads. Okay? So all the Israelites extended their necks and laid back and said, come on, we dare you. Well, of course, Pilate had to back down, but you can see the kind of vacillating weakness that was uh, typified his particular um, uh, uh, reign. Another example, what happened one time, he stole the korban which was the temple treasure. He took the temple treasure and he used it to build an aqueduct to bring water to Jerusalem. I mean, that's a good thing to bring water, but don't go steal the treasure out of the temple. And of course, that started a protest and that protest turned into a riot. And so he sent his men in there and they beat the protesters mercilessly and killed quite a few of them. This typified his reign. This typified what he did. So these events that we see are just a continuation of the kind of thing that, that um, Pilate did in order to try to keep uh, order in Jerusalem at that time. Now, we don't have this particular event is not included anywhere else in Scripture. And actually, it's not included anywhere else in any of the other histories. So sometimes people question about whether or not this actually happened. Well, remember, before you do that, that Luke is an excellent historian. He researched all of this. He's not just making this stuff up. So we can rest assured that both of these incidences actually happened. So apparently what happened is a group of Galileans took a pilgrimage to to Jerusalem. These aren't zealots. They're not criminals. They're not rebels. These are pilgrims, uh, people from Galilee. And of course, they're probably going on one of the feast days. Perhaps it was Passover. And they went to Jerusalem to make sacrifices to God. And that's the reason that they are there. And while they are there, Pilate sends his soldiers to go and kill them. Now, what's so extraordinary about this and what it makes it such a heinous crime is that the blood of their sacrifices was mingled with their own blood. Now, that may not mean anything to you, but it meant everything to the Hebrews. Because if you look at the temple uh, compound, there was this huge court around the center part of it called the Court of Gentiles, and that's where Gentiles could go. 
But in the inner courts, there's a sign on the door saying that if you're not a Hebrew, if you're not a Jew, don't enter or you're going to die. Basically, that that was it. You know, in fear of death, you don't go into this. So the only way that the blood of the of the pilgrims could have been mixed with the blood of their sacrifices because the sacrifices were being made by the priests in the inner courts of that of that temple. They had to defile the temple. They had to march right into a place where no one except Hebrews were allowed. So it wasn't just the fact that they killed them. It was where they killed them and when they killed them. Now, this is the, the, the situation that is existing there. And, and so they come up and, and they tell Jesus about it. Now, there are undertones here. Jesus is going to respond in a certain way. But the, uh, I have to say that there are probably political undertones here. Because the tension between Rome and Israel was mounting. And in fact, there was a very warlike sentiment in the era. You know, the zealots, that's what they were doing, pressing for an open rebellion. But that warlike sentiment, that open rebellion idea was beginning to grow amongst the people of Israel as well. And of course, you know, it will culminate starting around 66 AD, but being ending in the complete destruction of Israel in 70 AD of Jerusalem and the killing of most of the Israelis. And it would stay like that until 1948. So it was a major event that was going to occur. Now, this is where it is headed. So there's, there's great political overtones. Now, when these men introduce this idea to Jesus... You have to imagine that it's kind of a question, well, where do you stand on this? Here's what Pilate did. Now, where are you for it or are you against it? Are you a zealot? Are you, are, are you a patriot? Are you an Israelite? Are you going to stand up against Pilate? And, and in that way, it could have easily been a trap. I don't think it was a trap, but it was that kind of a question or, or that kind of a statement. You remember what the Herodians said later on when they came to Jesus and said, is it lawful for us to pay taxes to Caesar? It's the same kind of idea. Here's what the Romans are doing. Here's the horrible oppression. Here's Here's what Pilate has done. So where do you fall on this? But I think it's even more than that. Because after all, you know that Jesus has been openly teaching that he's the Messiah. He's been telling people that I am the son of God. I am the son of man. I came for this. I came for that. I've I've come to seek and save the lost. That's the whole cosmic initiative that we've been talking about for months. You remember back in Nazareth when he took the scroll and read from Isaiah and he read a very messianic passage. And at the end of that passage, he says, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. So in a very real sense, what they might be doing to Jesus is coming to him and saying, "Okay, you're supposed to be the Messiah. Our idea of the Messiah is someone who's going to lead us in rebellion against Rome, overthrow Rome and elevate Israel to worldwide prominence. When are you going to do something about this? What do you intend to do about the problem of the Romans? But there was something underneath. Jesus is not going to see it that way. And he knows what's really in their hearts. He knows what is on their mind. It might have been masked in the very political things of the day. But underlying this is a question of why does God allow these things to happen? 
And that is exactly the way he's going to respond. Look in the second verse. And he answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? Now, here's the basics of the mindset of the people. And we know that this is their mindset. They saw themselves as God's people, the the Jews did. And, of course, they should because God said many, many times, you are my people from Exodus. As early as the sixth chapter, I will take you to be my people and I will be your God and you shall know that I am the Lord your God. I mean, God made it absolutely clear, you are my people. Now, the question on everyone's mind is, why is God allowing the Romans to oppress us? Why is God allowing us to suffer this way? Because it wasn't just what Pilate did. It was the taxes. It was the arrogance. It was the immorality. It was the paganism of Rome. And and they defiled the very presence of the holy city just by being there. So the the question is, how can God allow this to his people? Well, once again, the legalists step forward. The legalists have an answer because they always have an answer. The presupposition of legalism is that they suffer because they have committed an egregious sin. I mean, the principle here is one that has existed all through the history of the Christian church. The idea that people suffer, well, not actually a Christian church, all through the history of humanity is that God punishes those who have sinned egregiously. Now, we know that to be true. God does punish sin, either in this world or in the, the life to come. But in the way that they are seeing this, the reason that these Galileans must have, uh, uh, have been punished and the rest of the Galileans in the temple were not is because they must have done some horrible sin. So here's sort of the maxim of the legalist mindset of the people is that Bad things happen to good people when good people do bad things. Let me repeat that. It's kind of important because this is the way the legalists see it, and I'm going to kind of twist this later on and tell you the way it really is. Bad things happen to good people. You've heard that many times. There are books about why bad things happen to good people. Well, bad things happen to good people, according to legalism, when good people do bad things. And... God punishes them for that. Well, Jesus is going to um, stand against it, but interestingly, hugely interestingly, he doesn't hear. He doesn't come back and say, no, that's not the reason that, that, that they were killed. It's because of something else. He is going to go back and get it right back into the place where he was before the interruption occurred. Now, Now, elsewhere in Scripture... It is very clear, and this is sometimes that I wonder when I read this about the mindset of the Jews at the time of Jesus. It's not like it wasn't specifically stated in Scripture that that's not the way it was. That not all the time that people suffer is because they have committed some egregious sin. I mean, obviously, these people knew the book of Job. They obviously knew what happened to Job. They obviously realized what the message and the teaching of Job was, yet apparently they hadn't learned it. You, you know the story. <laughs> Satan comes to God and says, 
you know, that Job there that you think is so righteous, all you got to do is let me oppress him. Just just let me take everything away from him. Let, let me attack him physically and he will curse you to your face. So that's the reason Job suffers, okay? And of course, we know that's what happened. He lost everything. He lost his children and he lost his health. And he's just miserable suffering at the end of Satan's spear. And here come his three friends. The three friends are going to be there to comfort him. And they get there and they take one look at Job and they can't say anything for several days. And finally, when they tell Job what it is that's wrong is obviously you have a secret sin. Uh, Nobody suffers this bad and and hasn't committed some sin that you're hiding. So what you got to do is just confess this sin. Confess it out. You know, Satan's got a stronghold in your life. You know, just get rid of that stronghold and God is going to bless you from that point on. First one to speak was Eliphaz. If you may remember, this is right from the beginning, Job 4. Remember who that was innocent ever perished or where were the upright cut off? As I have seen those who plow iniquity and saw trouble reap the same. I'm sorry, so trouble, reap the same. By the breath of God, they perish, and by the blast of his anger, they are consumed. That's the answer of the legalists. And boy, I tell you what, that got to be a very heated argument before it was finished. A young man named Elihu comes along, and he burned with anger. He burned with anger at Job because he justified himself rather than God. It got to the point where Job turned to them and says, you guys are miserable Comforters. If you came to comfort me, you are simply not doing. And of course, we know God takes Job's side in the end. He says to Eliphaz the Temanite, My anger burns against you and against your two friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. So that should have served to teach these legalists that that is not what is going on. And yet, it was the mindset of virtually everyone, including the disciples. The disciples had the same mindset. You remember what happened in the ninth chapter of John when Jesus is walking along. We read this. He passed by. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? I mean, they had exactly the same mindset. Of course, on that occasion, Jesus sets them straight. He says it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. He articulates that the reason this man was born blind and has spent his entire life blind is because of the providential work of God. Because I am here to give him his sight so that God can be glorified in your presence. That's the reason the man is blind. It's not because he sinned or because his Parents sinned. Now, one would expect Jesus to make an argument like that right here. But what he said, no one expected. Look at the third verse. No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. 
That way that he addresses them, no, but I tell you. That word no is more than just a negation. It is actually a very strong, emphatic negative that says something along the lines of, by no means, but rather. Okay, he says, okay, here's the, here's the guys talking about this. And Jesus says, by no means, but rather. We're going to get right back to where I was when you interrupted me. Because that is exactly what is going to happen when he says that. Then he goes on and he says that modified truth formula. But I tell you, unless you repent, you also are likewise. You all likewise. Remember, he's talking to the crowd. Will perish. I can only imagine the stunned look on the face of the interrupters. Wait a minute. We weren't talking about me. I wanted to see what you thought about Pilate. I wanted to see what you thought about this Roman oppression. I wanted to know why you as the Messiah weren't going to fix this for us. I wanted to know why God does not look after his people any better than he does. I wanted to know whether these people were sinning. Who said anything about me? This isn't about me. It's about them. And Jesus says, no, it's not. It's about you. You see, Jesus is not concerned at this moment about what happened with Pilate. That's not his concern. Jesus is not concerned at this moment about the oppression of the Romans. Jesus is not concerned at this moment about the tragedy of those who lost their lives and how heinous a crime it was. It's not that he doesn't have sympathy. It's that it is not his purpose. His purpose is redemptive. Jesus is concerned in eternity. Jesus is concerned in salvation and sanctification and redemption. Jesus is concerned about which side of the line you're going to fall on. Are you going to fall on the line of those who are God's willing servants who know that Jesus came and he hung on a cross for the fiery wrath of God to be poured upon him and that's what happened to your sins? Or are you going to be on the other side of the line where you are going to face that wrath yourself? That's what Jesus is concerned about. He's concerned about whether you are the people of God or not. He's concerned about whether you as a nation are going to continue to be the people of God. Jesus is talking about salvation. In fact, Jesus is interested in, will you likewise perish? Very personal. This is something that drove right to the heart. Each and every one of us needs to to, to face this question. Will you likewise perish? Because you have to repent in order not to. The question, brothers and sisters, is not whether one sin is worse than another. The question is not whether one person is a greater sinner than another. The question is not whether one people group is a more sinful people group than another. The question is, will you likewise perish? Because as Paul says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Two words that Jesus uses here, both of them hugely important. The word repent and the word perish. Unless you repent. Great Greek word to know, the word metanoia, it means to turn, do a 180, to turn around. 
But in the context in which it is used when it is talking about salvation, it is the born-again experience. It is to be regenerated. It is to turn from your sins and turn to the only one who can save you from those sins. To turn to Jesus, the one, again, who hung on the cross, who took the wrath of God, and upon whom the, 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 the atonement of sins occurred right then and there. That's the only way that you are going to avoid that yourself. And that's why Jesus says, repent, turn, accept the redemptive plan that God has brought before you and lays before you. Because if you don't repent, you will likewise perish. The word perish means to be destroyed. But it means to be destroyed in an eschatological sense. It's the same word that is used in John 3.16. And that beautiful verse that so many people love. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. That whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. People don't think that through. They don't think it through. Whoever believes in him should not perish. You know what that means? Whoever doesn't believe in him will perish. They don't read on to the 18th verse. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Jesus says, unless you also repent, you will all likewise perish. So brothers and sisters, it's not about why does God allow bad things to happen to good people? It's what is God let any good things happen to bad people. It's not why does God save some. It's why does God save any. It's not why did those people suffer because of an egregious sinfulness. It is why doesn't your sinfulness bring you to immediate perishing as it did them. Jesus is simply saying that's not going to be any different. It's just going to be eschatological instead of something that happens right now. Now, I can't help but think, I I realize that's Jesus' focus, but I cannot help but think that there are also some political undertones here. Because after all, Jesus is talking to Jews, and this is a Jewish political statement that is being made. So I cannot help but believe that Jesus is not also saying, unless you as a people group, as those that God has given so much to, unless you repent and accept God's plan of redemption for you, which is the same plan of redemption for the whole planet now, you likewise will perish. I mean, he clearly states that at the end, the triumphal entry in Luke, when he's looking at the city of Jerusalem, and he moans and mourns over it. If you had only seen your time of visitation, now you will be destroyed. He said it earlier in the, um, uh, the book of Matthew, right after the Sermon on the Mount, when he was marveling over the faith of the centurion, he said, I tell you, many will come from east and west, recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. While the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Jesus is not going to let the conversation be hijacked by a discussion of politics. He's going to bring it right back on a personal level and a national level. That God has a plan of redemption. And it is a plan of redemption for every single one of you. And if you do not repent, you will perish. The same thing is true today that was true then. 
Now, Jesus is going to go on. He's going to deepen this, strengthen the argument, because he's got another example that he's going to bring forward. Look in the um, fourth verse. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? Siloam is in the southeastern part of the old city of Jerusalem. The, the, the pool of Siloam, you know, it's still there. Actually, we, we stood right in front of it. It's fed by a stream that Hezekiah tunneled underneath uh, the, the mount upon which everything is built. And we actually walked through that tunnel. It, it's from the spring of Gihon in the, uh, um, in the Kidron Valley. But nonetheless, apparently they were building a tower or there was a tower built. Many people think that they were actually constructing Pilate's aqueduct. And this is one of the supports that fell on them. We don't know that. The story doesn't tell us. But there are a couple things about this example that really shift things a little bit and really bring out the theology here. First of all, instead of talking about Galileans, now we're talking about Jerusalemites. Now... It meant a lot to the Judeans because they considered Galileans to almost be foreigners. They lived up there on the other side of Samaria, okay? They talk funny. They're they're hicks up there. So, yes, a bunch of Galileans died, and it was terrible, but that's removed from me. But now we're talking about people from my hometown. We're talking about Jerusalemites from Judea, so it's much closer to home. But the most important aspect is no longer are we talking about a wicked, evil man, Pilate, who brought destruction on these people. We're talking about an act of God, something that no one actually perpetrated. Now, there might have been negligence involved, but the story doesn't tell us that. It is given to us as if this is an act of God. And in other words, it was God's providence that 18 people are going to die that day because a tower is going to fall upon them. Now, is the way that you interpret this that somehow they sinned more egregiously than anyone else? Or let's make it personal. Do you think they sinned any worse than you have sinned? And that's the reason God punished them. Because if that's the reason God punished them, then you just wrote your own death warrant. Because it's not the degree of sin that matters here. Put a scale between God's holiness and the sinfulness of humanity. The the lowest person on that scale you are a hair's breadth away from. Everybody pales when we start talking about the holiness of God. And so therefore, if it is indeed God punishes sin and that's the only thing you get out of this, then you also will perish. Because you have sinned just as egregiously as they have. Now, a couple of other things that we should see from this. I'm not going to go into them in any details. But one thing, notice the courage of Christ. Notice the courage with which he speaks. Have you ever been in a situation where everybody's going one way and you go another way? Where everybody's all in a fervor about some kind of patriotic or, or some kind of ideological thing. And you step out and say something entirely different. Well, that's what Jesus did his whole life. And that's what he's doing here. He's not cushioning this. He's not softening in this so he doesn't step on anyone's toes. Jesus, Jesus was courageous his whole life. But you know what else Jesus was? He was compassionate. The world sees Christianity so different from the way it is. 
The world sees a Christian who warns about sin as being a hater. I, by our culture right now, am identified as a hater and I engage in hate speech here because I talk about sin and I talk about God's plan and God's ethical standards and his perfection and how we fall short of that and how we will be uh, facing our own retribution because of that, uh, ultimately, eschatologically. But that makes me a hater, but it's not because I'm a hater. It's compassionate. Do you think it is actually compassionate to see someone walking off a cliff and not say anything because you might hurt their feelings? Of course not. But Jesus is speaking here out of a deep compassion. He's willing to put his life on the line, to put his body on the line, to risk everything, humanly speaking, so that he can compassionately warn people that you need to settle with your creditor before you get to the judge. Because after you get to the judge, there's no going back. Well, brothers and sisters, um, the first time I wrote this, uh, I, 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 I went off on a tirade. I have to admit, I do this. I went off on about a two-hour tirade, and I wrote this scathing report on the health and wealth gospel. And, and that's where I was going with this. Uh, and I hope you realize it, this and how this totally refutes the health and wealth gospel. When, when I came to know Christ, I was 39, 40 years old, and I had spent most of my adult life with uh, an addiction. And it was like coming alive. It was like being reborn when I, I came to know Jesus. And I was a sponge I just wanted to absorb it. I had a lot of lost time to make up for. And so fortunately, praise God, I got a lot of good teaching, but at that time I got a lot of bad teaching too. I mean, I would read in scripture, it would talk about the sovereignty of God, and then I would hear from other people that, well, basically, God is sovereign except when you, you ask him to do things, and, and you have to sort of manipulate him in order to do it. You, you have to say things in a certain way, and, and if you've got a sin in your life, and, and, and that sin is going to hold you back, well, God isn't going to bless you. You need to get rid of that sin before God will bless you. Of course, they don't say that. They don't call it a sin. They say Satan's got a stronghold in your life, and you've got to get rid of that stronghold before God is going to bless you. And that if he doesn't bless you, it's because you've got a stronghold. You have a secret sin somewhere in your life. Exactly what I was reading in Job said exactly the opposite. And so I was going to kind of focus on that, but then I realized something. I realized that Jesus didn't focus on that. Jesus did not go into a discussion of why bad things happen to good people. He, he, he brought it right down to the core. And so that's what I want to do this morning. I actually wrote out, if you read the notes, I actually wrote out a whole list of things that actually, the reasons that God allows bad things to happen to people, uh, to his people. If you want to go through them, I plan to go through them a little bit in the after church. Stick around. But I think that we need to answer the question because it is a burdensome question. Why do bad things happen to good people? And the short answer is that they don't. Bad things don't happen to good people. Bad things happen to bad people. Do you remember what Jesus said when the rich young ruler called him good teacher? Remember how he responded? 
He said, why do you call me good? There is none good but God. Now, Jesus was not stating, admitting he wasn't uh, God. He wasn't refuting his deity. and He wasn't refuting his perfection. What, what he was saying is, you need to amend your idea of good there. Because when you talk about good, and good is another word like love or faith, or it has so many different levels. But when you talk about good, you need to use the standard by which you will be judged, and that is God's standard. And in God's standard, there are no good people. But Paul says in the book of Romans, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. So the answer to why do bad things happen to good people is that they don't. Because there are none good. And that's the standard of good that you will be judged by. God's perfect standard of good. Peter says in his letter, quoting the Old Testament, God speaking, I am holy. Therefore, you must be holy. Jesus tells us what the standard is in the Sermon on the Mount. If you want to work your way into heaven, there's a simple formula. Be perfect, therefore, as your Father in heaven is perfect. So when we answer the question, and and I realize that most people who ask that question really are not using that definition of good. They're really using a different definition of good, the upstanding people. But that's the reason Jesus cuts through it. Okay, we don't need to talk about that. We don't need to put this on God. We need to put this on you. What about you? What about your goodness? Is your goodness going to get you into the presence of God. No, it won't. So this is what the answer. The answer on the table, and I told you at the beginning, was will you likewise perish? And the answer is yes, you will. The answer is absolutely. You will perish either now or sometime in the future at the time of judgment. Unless You repent. Now, what does Jesus mean to repent? He's told us. That's why I say the context is so important. He has told us. He has just gone through it. Here's what I mean. There's good servants and there's bad servants. There are servants that are going to do their Lord's will. And there are servants who are not going to do their Lord's will. So how do you get to be a good servant or a bad servant? I have come for that purpose. I have come to cast fire down upon the sins of the people of this earth. Not in eschatological judgment, but on me. I will be baptized with the baptism of the wrath of my Father. And I am in agony until it's done and I can say it is finished to Telestai. I have paid for it. But that becomes the dividing line. I did not come to bring peace to the world. I came to bring division. Division with even the family unit is involved because you are on one side of that line or the other. I continue to say it. This is the very central essence of the human experience. You either are on the side of the line where he on the cross took your sins and atoned for them or you are not. That line is infinitely thin and theological 
theologically defined. There is no middle ground. There is no nominal Christianity. You are either his or you are not. You are either known by him or you are not. How does one get to be known by him? For goodness sakes, think for yourself and look at the signs. It's right here in the word of God. He tells you, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Use the brain that God gave you. Consider the facts. The facts are that you are sinful and God is holy and there's no way to get between the two of them except through a redeemer. And Jesus says, if you, if you don't come to a settlement with the one who wants to settle with you, I read earlier, behold, I stand at the door and knock and whoever opens the door, I will come in and eat with you and eat with me and and in with me. Your creditor wants to have relationship with you and is willing to wipe off every single bit of red ink and to forgive you for every sin that you had. But you need to settle with him before you reach the judge. Because if you don't, you likewise will perish. That's the message. So the question here is this. Will you accept the free gift of God's plan of redemption through Jesus Christ? Or will you all likewise perish? You think about that. Let's pray. Our dear Lord, I don't know if it can be put any clearer than that. And I'm not talking about my words. I'm talking about yours. You, you cut right through every argument. I mean, we want to argue all day about whether God is fair or whether he is just or whether he's paying attention. And you say, what about you? Will you likewise perish? I pray that everyone within the sound of my voice and, and through multiple pulpits this morning that preach the truth that they will come to understand that they must repent, turn from their sinful ways, turn from trying to fix their own problem and turn to you and give their heart and their life to you. Surrender to you with everything that they have and give you the glory. In Christ's name we pray, amen.